Do you like aliens, UFOs, cryptids, and the supernatural? What about self-defecating humor? Uh, actually, it's self-deprecating humor. Well, you may both be right. Alien Theorist Theorizing is a comedy podcast that examines cases like Roswell, Bigfoot, or the Atacama Alien. If any of these topics pique your interest, subscribe to Alien Theorist Theorizing free anywhere you find podcasts or go to alientheorists.com. Welcome back, everybody, to That Trippy Show. This is Joe Trippy. We're 60 days from Election Day, so things are getting serious. And who better to join me than today's guest? Joining me today is the author of It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump, Stuart Stevens. Uh, it's great to have him with us. He was also the lead strategist for the Romney campaign in 2012 and uh, works with the Lincoln Project as well now. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for, for being with hey, us. Hey, Joe. Uh, Stuart, I just want to start with uh, back in January 2016, you and I are fellows at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics with uh, David Axelrod uh, brought us in to do that. Uh, it was a great experience. I hung on every when we were talking to the students and you were uh, leading with what you were thinking, I found myself hanging on every word like a sponge to try to pick up uh, some insights that I, I found ama- really interesting. But I also remember back then how early you had come out against Trump, uh, how hard he was coming at you on Twitter and other in other ways, he was attacking you back. And I just wonder, back then, did you see this? But I mean, did you think, did you see it get, getting to where it is today? No, look, I mean, a lot of people were wrong in 2016, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Um, I didn't think Trump would win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. Um, so uh, I, I just, I had the attitude, you know, if you remember those other 15 candidates who ran against him, they all killed each other so they could get one-on-one with Trump. Because surely the Republican Party was going to nominate a like failed casino owner who was a maxed out Anthony Weiner donor who talked about having sex with his daughter in public, like that wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, but it did. So uh, you know, in retrospect, I realized a lot of it is that I didn't want to believe it. I was just in denial about what it said about the party and said about people I'd worked with. Um, and then I went through a period after he won, like a lot of us uh, in kind of my world of, well, you know, he's really not the Republican Party. He just hijacked the Republican Party. But I don't really know how you sustain that when um, he's got 90 plus percent in the Republican Party. And, and he is the, it's a fact. The Republican Party endorsed Roy Moore and attacked John Bolton. That's the Republican Party. And you have to kind of deal with that. Yeah, well, I, what I found interesting is that back then in, you know, that early in 2016, I guess we all didn't think it could happen uh, or want it to happen uh, or wanted to believe it couldn't. But uh, what what I find fascinating is the number of people, like we've always been, uh, had a real, I think, friendly relationship, decent civil, we disagree on, on some of the politics. How many of the people that I felt that way about in the Republican Party who have gone like totally off. I mean, they, they won't talk to me. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, I mean, there are very few of those people left. Um, 
where the civility and decency that was there, I think really the camaraderie that uh, was out there is just all gone. It was that, I mean, was that all a facade or what, what happened? I mean, so getting to your book, what, what I happened? think a lot of, I think a lot of these people are probably ashamed of supporting Trump and don't want to justify supporting Trump. You know, in my world, it occurred to me one day, um, you know, I was at the gym when I was watching Nicole Wallace, that there's really a little group of us who literally we used to all sit in the same room and Bush headquarters. I mean, me, Nicole, Matthew Dowd, Michael Gerson, you know, writes for the Post now, Mark McKinnon. I mean, we've all come to the same place on Trump. And it wasn't like we had some meeting and like drafted a resolution. <laughs> I mean, it's just intuitive. I mean, Trump is everything that we thought that we were aspiring not to be. Not that we were perfect and not that we didn't play to the dark side too much. But, you know, I, I listen, I, I, I am yet to talk to one elected Republican official who will say off the record that Trump should be president. Not one. They can tell you why they think uh, Trump uh, has some positives. A lot of what they say is, you don't know how much worse it would be if I wasn't there. Which is why, you know, I'm going to start saying I stopped an alien invasion last week because we didn't get invaded. (laughs) I should get credit. Um, it's obvious. And, you know, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I look at someone like Dan Coates, you know, former Senator from Indiana. I worked on all his races, wonderful human being. Um, I am sure Dan Coates did this. I mean, he, he's a guy who wouldn't have lunch with Donald Trump. I'm sure did it because he thought it was better for the country. Um, and I'm sure it was because he was there, but, um, you know, I, I think most people, I mean, there's this whole phenomenon, you know, after the Access Hollywood, where people said that they were voting for Mike Pence, not Donald Trump. Right. It's like, really? That's like getting on a plane and saying, I'm where, like, not the first 10 rows are going, but the second 10 rows are going. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't think so. I think the planes land in the same place, dude. I, I uh, urge everybody out there, uh, if you haven't gotten uh, Stewart's book, uh, you should. It's in a really insightful on on how the Republican Party got to where it is today and, and, and why Trump isn't um, is sort of the logical outcome. Uh, to In fact, when you look at the, um, uh, the Republican Party platform, uh, seems to like just leap out of the title of your book, right? I mean, here it is, uh, you know, the, the platform's whatever Trump wants it to, to be. Um, That's, that, that, that really, I mean, you know, I think... When you're in the middle of something, it's hard to realize the total import of it and history and all that. But I mean, look, I, I wrote this book. I finished it about a year ago, and it's a pretty bleak view of the Republican Party. But I would have to say I was overly optimistic. I mean, I don't think that I, in a million years I would have imagined that they would actually admit that the party didn't stand for anything but what Donald Trump wanted it to stand for. It's like a Fuhrer oath. I mean, and, you know, Joe, I'm sure it's like this way the Democratic Party, at least the Republican Party, you know, there were always these very intense fights over the platform. Oh, yeah. And, and now it's just like, well, whatever Donald Trump wants, you know, it, it really I, I, to codify that. I mean, you have to give them credit. At least they're honest, I suppose. You know, they're not even pretending that all this stuff that we said mattered. They just it's whatever Donald Trump wants. You know, in my view, the Republican Party has collapsed, unlike any other 
collapse uh, in modern American political history, but I would say probably in American history. The only thing I compare it to is the final collapse of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, where what the party said and what it delivered was just so disparate that it just finally collapsed under its own weight. So, so what happens, uh, Stuart? I mean, do you see, I mean, obviously the, the Republican Party, same thing happened in California. I mean, uh, look, look at California. It went, it went from being the beating heart of the Republican Party, the electoral citadel to third place. It's hard to find any areas of significant public policy that are really affected by the Republican Party in California. That's where inevitably uh, the Republican Party is headed nationally. Now, it's kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It, it may, how it ends is easier to predict than how long it takes. You know, it might right. take longer than we think. But, you know, if you, if you look at um, Americans 15 years old and younger, the majority are non-white. So, I mean, odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And <laughs> right. that's just like a death sentence for the Republican Party as it's currently constructed. And there's no desire for the party to change. And that's exactly what happened in California. No. Exactly. Yeah. And it didn't have to. It just no. 1994, Pete Wilson, it went yeah. the wrong way. No, and that was fascinating because you had the choice back then. You sort of had the George Bush, yep. Texas sort of um, uh, compassionate conservatism, really reaching out to minorities, trying to be yeah. inclusive as a party. And then you had Pete Wilson doing the the hardline anti-immigrant, you know, I mean, basically uh, really just um, pushing uh, people of color uh, diversity away. You You would think watching those two movies play out in terms of Texas and California yeah. that the national party would have picked. So, so, so what's the end result of that? You know, a Republican can't win in California and a Republican can't lose in Texas. Now there's other factors, but, sure. and, and there was a different text, you know, the whole text uniqueness of Tex-Mex culture sure. and the way the, it was more integrated, more of, you know, there were sure. more people who were Anglo who had father-in-laws who were Hispanic. Um, but it is a very different vision. Um, and I mean, what I, I look at as a really telling indicator, though, is, is look at Asian Americans. I mean, they used to vote for uh, Republicans like 60, 70 yeah. percent. Now they vote against Republicans 60, 70 percent. And it's not like anybody was out there attacking Asian Americans, at least not until recently when Trump started attacking Chinese. <laughs> like, you know, like he had a list. Oh, I forgot to attack him. I got to do that. Um, but they got the joke that if you weren't white, you weren't welcome in the party. They're right. So, Stuart, I got to ask, looking back after the Obama victory in 2012, I remember, we all probably remember that autopsy yep. that Rice Priebus did on the party. And one of the things was like, you got to appeal to non-whites and you got to appeal to younger. Yep. I, I know we, it hadn't happened. Is 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 Trump more of a kind of an excuse to not do that or is it kind of a symptom? Well, you know, it's really fascinating uh, because when you look at that, um, it was presented as a political necessity, but it was also presented as a moral mandate that if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, you know, confusing, contradictory, cacophonous country, uh, you needed to represent it more. And then when Trump came along, it was like, you know, just threw it out the window with this sort of audible sigh of relief. Like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this. We can just win with white people. This is like yeah. so much easier. Uh, so, so much more, you know, we don't have to stretch ourselves. Um, 
to me, the telling moment in all of this uh, is like that day in December 2015 when Trump came out for a Muslim ban. And that's when the party, Reince Priebus, should have gone out and did what he did to his credit with Todd Akin, the Missouri Republican Senate candidate, who said those horrible things about women and rape. And Reince went out and said, look, there's no mechanism to take this guy off the ballot. He's a Republican nominee, but we're not going to support him. And OK, that cost probably cost us a seat, but it put us on the right side of a critical issue. Right. And the same. I mean, if, if Republican Party stood for anything, it, it would say it stood for some sort of constitutional uh, belief and a religious test is unconstitutional and a Muslim ban is a religious test. You know, I always right. use examples like the old British folk singer, Cat Stevens, who became Muslim, you know, it's like, what if Cat Stevens showed up at Heathrow and go, you know, actually I'm a Quaker now. Right. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to like ask him trivia questions about William Penn or something. I, I mean, what the hell? It's a religious test. And uh, people are Muslim if they say they're Muslim. And, and the party, you know, no one sort of cheered about it, but no one stopped him. And that, to me, was the tipping point. You know, Trump is a guy who tests people. He tests weakness. He's a gangster. And he pushes. And when you don't stop him, he'll push more. And he's still pushing today. So let me I want to ask you a little bit about uh, the Lincoln Project for a second. Because yeah. one of the things yeah. I've noticed in is, and I, this, I'm thinking about this sort of as a democratic strategy, democratic consultant here. I've noticed how much um, the spots and the and the, the the messaging is sort of put in terms of weakness and strength. I mean, making yeah. going at Trump as a weak and pointing yeah. out his weaknesses. And I'm yeah. just wondering if all these years I've missed that as a democratic. Strategist, that the, that you've got an insight into into the Republicans, voters, you, you know, desire for strength over weakness, or, or am I missing something? Well, I, I think um, look, it goes to what is the goal of the Lincoln Project. So the the, the goal, in a electoral sense, um, has been to take four points of Republicans out of Trump. You know, what we call the Steve Bannon line. We want to take that, um, and as you would expect, kind of the last to join Trump in 16 were the ones who had the most doubts, and they're, they're proving to be the first to drop. Um, and the idea uh, that Trump was a strong figure appealed to a lot of these people. Right. There also is the fact that it gets inside Trump's head. And uh, um, some of what we do, we do deliberately because we know that Trump and Trump's organization, it will create disruption within it. Um, and, you know, any day Trump is out attacking the Lincoln Project is a day he's not attacking Joe Biden. Right. I mean, we just laugh about it, like, what, you're going to attack us? Like, we, we're political consultants, dude. We wouldn't vote for ourselves. <laughs> I mean, are you crazy? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I, I'm a big um, admirer of the Biden campaign on multiple levels. Um, and, you know, if you I don't think this has been a, sort of gotten enough credit. If you look at that period when an incumbent president who didn't have a serious primary and I, I work for well, but you have to say Trump didn't have a serious primary. 
the weakest, most vulnerable point that a, a challenger has is after they receive the nomination before they can kind of raise money and get the campaign together. So what middle of Mar, middle of May, June uh, for Biden, you know, in, in Romney world, uh, the Obama campaign spent more on television in June and July than Bush and Kerry spent together in their entire campaign. Yeah. Now, was it decisive? I don't know. It sure sucked. I mean, we were running like 4,000 <laughs> points in places that we were like looking under the couch to get on the air. Um, but I think this is the first time that a challenger went up against an incumbent in that period. Yeah, he sure did. Biden did. went up. Now, you can say, okay, there are these external forces like COVID, but I mean, Cuomo had those same external forces and he went up. You know, he became a, he, more popular than he ever been. So had Trump dealt with it, right. um, it was a huge opportunity for him. Um, and I think it's really remarkable that the Biden campaign negotiated that. And you know, now I think, are in, to me, the race is very stable. They're in a very strong position. But I mean, look, if I just woke you up in the middle of the night and I said, look, Joe, there's a guy he's running for president. It's the worst economy in the history of the country. And more people have died from a disease in the last five months than ever before in the history of the country. How do you think the incumbent's doing? None of us would say, well, the guy's got it in the bag. You know, it's obvious. Um, I mean, sometimes I think we get, you know, so uh, hypnotized by the weirdness and, you know, the, the horribleness of Trump that we forget if he was just a normal bland republican he he he'd be losing this race yeah i mean with the right track is what 21 percent, something like that I mean, yeah yeah know. it's it's bad it, yeah. i mean all the all those normal internals are are horrible for the president and i mean even like i noticed when you uh in your op-ed that you wrote that the on um uh recently about wisconsin that when you were writing about who who leads on who's the most radical? I mean, here he is yeah. saying, you know, and it's it's Trump, right? I mean, yeah. it's uh, on all these uh, measures. Who will make us safer? Yeah. Uh, Biden leads on that. It's it's so he's underwater on all these. Uh, uh, I mean, when I look at underneath the, the head to head, there's very little that makes you see how. Um, you know, how how he is not in deep trouble and yeah, how Biden I, I, uh, doesn't the, have the, uh, the only, a very strong and, like you said, very stable position right now. Yeah. I mean, there is this number that people still think that Trump does as well or maybe a little better than, than Biden on the economy, which kind of baffles me. I don't really know what that means. Um, but, you know, to me, uh, if you look at the history of unpopular incumbents coming back, it almost always involves like a mea culpa. I mean, I think people will give you a second chance uh, if you ask for it. Right. You, you know, it's the one thing Trump's incapable of doing. And, uh, you know, if you look at, I mean, you know, you, you, this, this, you, you'll remember this. I mean, Hugh Carey, who was incredibly unpopular in New York, came back. You know, Chuck Percy. I mean, people do come back. You know, Bill Clinton came back. But they asked for a second chance. Um, and I think that Americans are very forgiving and have a tendency to give you that. But you can't say you're going to quit drinking and just stay at the bar. I mean, you got to at least go yeah. to Betty Ford. Um, I've talked a lot about how, in a lot of ways, the contrast is chaos versus community. And, there, and yeah. the problem is 
Trump can't stop himself from he can't change that contrast that contrast because everything he does is to create more con- more more chaos even um yes uh portland or or yes. any of the things he's he sort of rails about is just pointing to the chaos under his under his presidency if he were able to call on the nation to become a, to to pull together as a community do it and 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 do a mea culpa, or at least do give me, you know, let's try to work together to, to fix this. He might get somewhere, but like you say, I just don't see, he's just not capable of doing that. No, I mean, um, and, and look, I could make a case that this is the best it's going to be for Trump. Because I think by the first debate, this is going to be all about schools. Um, you know, these rituals of fall that we have sort of in our DNA. You go back to school, Friday night lights, football games, Saturdays down South playing football, all of that's disrupted. And if you're, you know, if you have kids and they went away to college, the odds, odds are by the first debate, they're going to be back home, you know, which is a mixed blessing. And, you know, you're going to have paid the full tuition. Um, and schools are just chaotic in a lot of places. And, you know, you're not going to have a Michigan Ohio State game. Ouch. And I just think that the way in which the, the thread of our lives, the sort of fabric of our lives has been torn by this. And look, I mean, here, here's an amazing statistic um, that a friend in England sent me. Um, uh, if Germany, if we had the same success rate as Germany, a hundred in, in fighting COVID, 140,000 more Americans would still be alive. Yeah. There, there are 111 per uh, million deaths. We're 544. That's a staggering number. Yeah. We're- and, you know, it's, it's getting to a point where I think everybody kind of either knows someone affected by COVID or you're one or two degrees separated from it. Um, and yeah, it, I think uh, we're only a couple of days from surpassing Sweden for mortality. Uh, I mean, yeah. and they didn't do a whole, I mean, you know, they, they, they kind of went for, for herd immunity without, uh, uh, you know, and still suffered the economic consequences and got it down where we're still, we're still. Yeah. Totally in Sweden, you know, which is kind of my adopted country. I spend like a couple of months here a year. Their whole social dynamic is so different. I mean, they're really, you know, I mean, their relationship with the healthcare system is so yeah. different. You know, I mean, well, you like, like all those cold places. I, I, I like those cold places. You, my, you like my, that extreme, my, you're the extreme long, sports guy on that stuff. You know, my, my longtime ski coach, who's Swedish, uh, who's now in his 70s, had uh, to go to the hospital to get two stints put in, and it cost him $28, and he was complaining. Yeah. But as he said, like the food was okay, so I guess it was worth <laughs> it. But $28. So, um, you know, the, what's fascinating to me, just aside on the Swedish, if you listen to this guy, Anders, whatever his last name is, who's head of the, the Swedish COVID response, it's extraordinary hearing him interviewed because he, he will openly talk about mistakes they made. Right. I mean, you know, I heard an interview where someone was saying, well, Sweden's done a really good job because, no, we hadn't. And we had no idea this many people would die. And, and, and we, we made serious mistakes not protecting our elderly in concentrations enough. And we've learned a lot. I mean, it's but just think, so rational. But you'll you can never, never see hear that in America. You never see Donald Trump or his administration no. do that. That's sort of that. If he could do that, and then you know, and then sort yeah. of rally people, he he'd have a, a chance. I don't see that contrast uh, 
changing the, uh, because he can't. That's the, that's the real problem. And also, I think Biden is pretty sec- settled into that sturdy, you know, responsible leader, decent civil uh, his, you know, uh, to 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 do this sort of campaign that he, your life will be more chaotic with with, with under Joe Biden than with me is a little. Uh, the bar has you know, been set I, a little I, high there. I, you know, I don't see how that happens. I think something remarkable could be happening, Biden. Um, you know, he's run for president before and have been very good at it. Uh, but I think you're in this moment. We could be. But it looks that way to me. Where qualities that he's had that before have been negative will now turn into strengths. Um, he's sort of boring. So b- what is the flip side of boring is, is reliable, stable, right. yep. uh, predictable. Um, the fact that he's been in office, you know, since he's 28. So the idea now of having a president who actually knows how to be a president is sort of appealing. And, uh, you know, um, not to make too much of it, but if it's a history of this. You look at Churchill in 36, the guy was just, and you know, back scrap heap of history. He was this kind of bellicose guy that had no role. And 42, he's saving the empire. Margaret Thatcher, too harsh. Then all of a sudden the country just got where that's where they needed her. And I expect that that may be happening with, with Biden. And the country is in grief. And he, he is a man who tragically can speak to grief in ways that few of us can. The thing that, uh, you know, having done uh, Jerry Brown's race in 2010 in California after eight years of Arnold Schwarzenegger, there was that same feeling, he, nowhere uh, near the uh, same personality or, or uh, of, of Biden, but there was the mm-hmm. same feeling people just wanted somebody who could turn the lights on in the state house and, and right. was, knew how a legislature worked and those kinds of, and, you know, would make things work. And I think Biden is definitely... Uh, benefiting from that same from that same urge, um, I do want to just get into your uh, Wisconsin just for a second uh, yeah. because you wrote that that op ed, um, and you know everybody's with every new poll in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, everybody's freaking out. It's three points, it's four points, but you came out pretty strong and just said, you know, Biden's going to win Wisconsin. And I uh, well, I think he will. Look, I mean. It's remarkable. Romney lost Wisconsin by seven, not particularly close. Trump wins Wisconsin by just under one. But Romney got more votes. I mean, it's sort of mind boggling. And why? Well, 40 to 50,000 fewer voters showed up in the greater Milwaukee area. And in part, that's due to the uh, new voter ID laws. And there was a lot of court issues over that. And finally, at the very end, they were instituted. Um, there's some really interesting work that's been done by the University of Wisconsin trying to determine what percentage of those who didn't show was because of voter ID, which is a hard thing to drill down to. But th- they estimate around 20,000 of that um, was. But, I mean, if you had an election next Tuesday in Wisconsin, wouldn't you have record black turnout? I can't imagine yeah. you wouldn't. Yeah, I think so. Um so, you know, I look at it pretty simple. I think Trump maxed out on those upstate votes he's going to get and, and you're going to see record. Plus, I, I think a lot of I think Trump's whole conception of where America is is wrong. Like when he talks about these suburban women, I, I, don't, I don't think. Well, first of all, I don't know any suburban women. I mean, every woman I know who lives in a suburb works like seven or eight jobs, you know, various sorts. Um, and I, I don't think any of them want to be the person that wants the kids to think that they wouldn't welcome a neighbor 
from a, a different background or race, religion, uh, they, they don't want to be that person. You know, they, they want to be seen. They want to see themselves as being opening. And it's like the Confederate flag thing. You know, finally, my home state of Mississippi took down the state flag, which was basically the Confederate yeah, that's flag. that's great. And Donald Trump gets in a fight with NASCAR for banning the flag. Like, so let me get, you're a Republican, you're on the wrong side of a culture war with NASCAR? I mean, really? Yeah. It's just not, I mean, you take your average kid in Mississippi, suburban kid or white kid, like, you know, I mean, their role models are more black rap stars than Robert E. Lee. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the Trump just doesn't understand where the culture is. Um, so, Stuart, one thing you said a minute ago about uh, upstate white or upstate votes in Wisconsin, it seems like one of the things Trump is trying to run on or a strategy is that there's more of those kinds of votes out there that any of us are giving him credit for. Mm -hmm. Is, is that real in your mind or is it more just he's doing it because he has to? Well, yes, it is real. I mean, if you look at non, his group is non-college educated whites and you look at those who have never voted, who are out there, there's a lot of them. Um, and, and were he able to mobilize that? Sure. Now, you can say the same about every demographic just about in America um, of non-voters. Um, so it's sort of a truism of American politics. You know, how many young voters don't vote? How many, um, you know, just, just college-educated voters, they, they, they register and vote a little higher. Uh, it's mainly by age. Older voters vote more. Um, but yes, it, it is it is possible. Um, I, I think one of the disadvantages the Trump campaign has is because everybody said they were wrong in 2016 and they won, that they're going to believe that in the end they're going to win, inevitably. And I think that's a dangerous position. It's kind of like going into war thinking you're bulletproof because you weren't shot before. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's fascinating to me just in a poli-sci sense. You know, they, they say they're knocking on a zillion doors, whereas I understand that the Biden campaign isn't doing any of that. And I don't know any race where you've had that disparity. I mean, most people kind of try to do the same thing. It's just a matter of execution. I'm kind of with the Biden campaign. I don't know anybody that's been really happy to see a stranger knocking on their door the last four months. Right. I don't know. Um, but you, but know, you we'll see. But you also have the, I think, uh, if there was a group um, that didn't vote in 2016, um, it, I, I suspect there are, are more people who thought Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. No way Trump can yeah. win. I don't need Trump, to go. I don't need Trump, to show up. And I think all Trump those people, is, most yeah. most of them, I think, have gotten some sort of religion on why they shouldn't make that mistake this Trump time. Has so it always could be benefited from the inability to imagine Trump. Yeah, it's why one of the primary part we're talking about. And I think Hillary Clinton left a lot of votes on the table. I think he's benefiting from that in what's going to happen in the next sixty days. This whole quaint notion that Trump would ask permission to delay the election. No, he's not going to do that. Uh, he'll, he'll try to disrupt the election. Well, that does bring me, there's a couple, I mean, obviously we saw all these polls come out in the last, uh, all this week, uh, poll after poll, big, you know, big stable leads for, 
for Biden, um, with with some of the, the the battleground states being close. Obviously, they should. That's why they're battleground states. But the one, um, so one, your take on that. But secondly, and it gets to the point you just made. Um, you know, there's also now this the the red mirage. Um, uh, thing where uh, because of the way ballots are going to be counted by mail and that'll be slower than on election night, yeah. you're going to see a, a bunch of red up on the screen. And, you know, and yeah, uh, you know, could you, do you see Donald Trump going out there and declaring himself reelected president of the United States that night, not waiting for the rest of the ballots? And, and, and how do you, you know, so what's your take on all that? that that'd be uh, well, something really I mean, I think that's the most benign view of what Trump will do. I think that no question he'll do that. You know, what I say, and look, I'm the most anti-conspiratorial because, you know, those of us who work in politics know basically how boring it mostly is. But, I mean, uh, I, I, example I use, this is November 1st, Trump's behind. Uh, there's v- reports of voting irregularities in Dade County. I mean, there always are. Um he calls up Chad Wolf, the DHS. They send in whoever those guys are in camouflage into the Dade County Courthouse to seize boxes. Who's going to stop them? Like the security guard? I don't think so. So then the courts go crazy within you know hours. They demand their return. But say a couple of boxes have been open. And then you have a whole chain of custody issue. And what are you going to do? I mean, I, I, I find it very difficult to believe that Trump will allow himself to lose an election that he has not attempted to delegitimize. And I think he's tested Republicans and he tested Barr and he knows that Republicans won't stop him and he knows Barr won't stop him. So I think these next 60 days are the most dangerous in the country and Republic since the Civil War. I mean, what Donald Trump, you know, those of us who are normal and most of us are normal, we tend to ascribe abnormal behavior that people will revert to normalcy. They'll come to their senses. But Trump has always benefited from that. He's not a normal person. And he demands that you act normally while he has no intention of acting normally. And uh, so we really think the Democrats are going to renominate Joe Biden at the White House four years. You know, I don't think so. Right. I don't think they'd ever imagine doing it. Right. But Trump just does it and says, stop me. And the Republican Party is full of such weak people now. So it's other cowards that they won't stand up to him. And he knows that we, we, you know, a lot of a civil society is held together by mutual assumptions. Why do you stop at a red light at midnight on an empty road? You just do. You don't have to, you do. Um, and right. Trump doesn't have any of those limitations and he's surrounded by gangsters and people that, you know, that, that want to be part of his gang. The way you advance in Trump world is to prove that you will do more than the other person will to violate standards. You'll go further. Um, and I think it's very, very dangerous. Yeah. Well, he's already, he's already, you know, delegitimizing, you know, the mail ballots, everything. I mean, at every step of the way, and you know, he's going to do that for the next 60. And as you said, it's crazy because it probably is going to hurt him. You know, if he convinces Republicans not to mail in ballots, I mean, we always thought we did this better than Democrats. You do. So, I, I so, remember I, I, lost it, the, I lost Tom Bradley's race for governor of California in, in 82 because 
the Republicans back then were already yeah. light years ahead on on this yeah. kind of stuff, and we lost it at the in the absentee mail in ballots. And this, yeah. it, there's been several of those ever since every decade, every cycle. Um, Florida Mack, is a know? great example of it. And yeah, so Florida's okay. It's okay to do ballot. He. He does say it's okay to do mail ballots in Florida. <laughs> yeah, probably because like DeSantis called him up and said, like, are you out of your mind? This is the only way we have a chance to win. If Republicans get this message and you look at the polling and Republicans say they're less likely to mail in ballots, it's going to end up hurting Republicans. Yeah. So I got a question really for both of you. And, and I kind of want both sides of it. First of all, how do you stop this red mirage? Is there anything we can do? Win Florida. Win Florida. Uh, I think it's critical to win Florida. Uh, and in, in the Lincoln Project, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to do that. I think it's very winnable. Um, you look at seniors in Florida. You know, seniors are kind of uh, becoming against Donald Trump because he's trying to kill them. It's not very complicated. Right. Um, so um, the key to this to me is, is uh, to having a peaceful transition to, to having, you know, November 4th uh, without riots is to win Florida. And then it's over. Because, you know, Florida counts their ballots, you know, they are, except for military ballots, um, which never mattered until 2000. <laughs> but, um, yeah, win Florida. Ever, ever thought about it. But. I, I've, so, I've said win big. I mean, win big. It, yeah, we got to win yeah. big. And I think and you're right about winning Florida. You win Florida and we've been we, and it, it is a, a six, seven point. I don't know if we can do that, but if we get a six, seven point nationwide, you know, uh, on the popular vote, that should be big enough in terms yeah, of if it's 1964. Trump's not going to be able to do it. Um, you know, God help us if it's 2000. Yeah. Uh, no, mean, that's that's right. If it's 2000, it'll be. The most it, it'll it'll be uh, the danger that you're talking about. The next sixty days really will be the most uh, dangerous days for the country. Uh, yeah. Um, on that happy note, <laughs> you know, hopefully, I mean, I think Trump's going to win Pennsylvania. I mean, I think uh, Biden's going to win Pennsylvania. Um, well, if he if he if he does win uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan. And we can win Florida. That happens. I mean, that, I, I actually my my own view, just looking at all the polling to 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 date and the stability of it. Um, I actually think there's going to be it's not just going to be Trump, you know, who's in trouble here. I think a number of Republican more than the the three or four Senate candidates that most people are looking at uh, that could lose. It, it could be six, seven. I mean, it could be a, a very substantial loss in the Senate for, for the Republicans as well. If both those things happen, I mean, but it has to be that big, I think, um, that convincing a win that even Trump with all all the games and uh, and bar and everything they're going to throw at it uh, won't be able to to won't be able to hold on. You know, that's our mission in the Lincoln Project. I think it's doable. Well, I hope. Brother, I hope you, you, you do that. I hope we pull it off, all of us. Uh, and I do uh, want to remind people um, that the book is It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart, you know, thank you so much for being with us. And I do, again, urge people to go Great out. Fun, and this book very insightful and um, uh, gives a lot of uh, thought to what, uh, what the future is for the party and for the country. 
Thanks, Stuart. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of That Trippy Show. Uh, a reminder, if you have a question, please submit it on iTunes in the reviews. Uh, I'll answer some, and or at least try to. And please give us five stars while you're there. Thanks again for listening. And I think, you know, this time was another one of those uh, episodes where Alex was pretty sharp. Let's see what happens next week. <laughs>